the test for income tax purposes is highly objective. Do you have a green card? Are you physically present in the U.S.? That's pretty much it. For U.S. transfer tax purposes, it's a subjective test. It's based on domicile. Are you ready to transform your life? This is a no-nonsense show helping immigrants like you create generational wealth, even while working full-time. Get ready to take notes. Here's your host, Socket Jane. Welcome back, my Great to Wealth listeners. Today we have somebody that you should know. They are lawyers by trade and they understand cross-border transactions. They are very savvy in understanding how to think about when somebody is trying to move into the U.S. and try to talk about green cats, passports, and stuff like that in the U.S., especially if you're immigrating into the U.S. So that'll be a great conversation as we are starting to think about what's happening at the global level. People are thinking of trying to have their plan Bs, plan Cs, and one of the ways to look at this is trying to figure out if they need to have an exodus from one country to another, what's the path? And you probably don't want to do it. If you want to move tomorrow, you don't want to think about it yesterday. You want to think about it in months and years in advance. So I thought having those guys here, David Lesperance and Melvin Warshaw, we'll call him Mel, on the show here. Mel and David, thank you for being on the show. Appreciate it. Thank you, Saka, for having us. Yeah. So David and Mel, before we go into the nitty gritties of what you guys do, and I'll let you take the turns, who goes first, who goes second. I'm not going to moderate the conversation. When you hear the show's name, Migrate to Wealth, what does wealth mean to you guys? How do you look at it? Go ahead, Mel. The the greatest concentration of wealth is in family businesses. And you don't know that from looking at the New York Stock Exchange but many of America's largest companies are private companies. And if I mention the name Cargill to many Americans, they wouldn't know who it is. They may know now about Coke Industries, but -hmm. those are two of the largest privately held family businesses. Wow. Okay. And when I think of wealth, I think of not just the monetary thing, but it's really wealth of a family is the family cohesion, their safety, how you pass on ethics into future generations, how you protect families and you, along with maximizing their opportunities, a lot of what I do, I call it backup plans are really to protect family wealth and well-being. Mm -hmm. So that well-being is part of that. And Mel and I deal with, and we've got a particular case that that, uh, it's a client of mine I've known for 30 years and I'm bringing in Mel because we're doing that succession of planning. And of course, like the show of the same name, there are a lot of family dynamics there along with simply legalistic structures and trusts and things. Yeah, no, I think this is great. That's actually delve right in. When you guys are dealing with these families who have a lot of financial wealth, we'll talk about that because they're definitely, that's the one we want to figure out. And they're coming to you. Why are they coming to you? Or how are you helping them? Because you're helping them with protecting their legacy of the wealth they've created, the financial wealth they've created, but it's never only about money, right? It's That's about, as you said, David, about family cohesion, about family values. If the kids are already 25, 30 years old, how do you insert yourself into that complex ecosystem of multiple personalities, not just dealing with money, emotions flying left and right, How do you guys play a role in that? So often where we get involved is in this very mobile 
global world we live in, one member of the family decides, in my case, to move to the U.S. to get educated. And they go to Stanford or Berkeley. They like it. They decide to stay, raise a family, marry an American. But the family wealth might be in India or another country. Now, one of the things that's very important here is to understand the value system and the transparency of the American tax system. It's a voluntary tax system, but everyone is expected to voluntarily disclose all the information that the Internal Revenue Service requires. That can be a very, very daunting challenge. Regularly, I work on remediation projects for people who were green card holders and would have no way of knowing the intricacies of this very elaborate reporting system that the United States Internal Revenue Service has put together. So that's where I come in. David? Yes. So I have clients, a little bit of background. I'm a Canadian, but I grew up on the border. My father would wake up in Canada, go work at GM World <laughs> headquarters in Detroit every day. So I kind of grew up with Canada. What are you in Windsor? I was in Windsor. You're in Windsor. Child of Windsor. Right. So St. Clair Beach, out in the right. suburbs. Beautiful. Out my my wife's from Detroit. I know a lot about that place. Oh, yeah. Well, well, we had half the relatives on either side. And yeah. what was quite common, as you know, in the day, when mothers would feel contractions, they would run over to Henry Ford Hospital and have what they now call anchor babies, <laughs> which could be very good, but it also saddles the U.S. has this unique citizenship-based taxation. So I got called to the bar in 1990. Three things happened. I had one one of my law school study partners worked for Baker McKenzie in Hong Kong. So that was prior to the 97 handover. So I've been dealing with Hong Kong, China, Asian clients for three plus decades. Uh, Canada had a golden visa program back then. And I was kind of running up and down the Gulf before, during and after the Gulf War. And if this is Tuesday, must be Bahrain meeting private banking clients there. So that means GCC nationals. Back then and still now, three quarters of that were people from the subcontinent. So very familiar with NRI issues, Bengalis, Sri Lankans, Pakistanis, Lebanese, Palestinians, all those kind of issues. And I did my first U.S. expatriation, which was legally taking somebody out of the U.S. tax system Again, in 1990, so three plus decades of doing that. Mm -hmm. And so when you meet these, I used to kind of do the Phileas Fogg trips around the world, and you'd meet all kinds of different families and all kinds of different styles and cultural styles. So, for example, when you would go in and meet a client from Saudi Arabia, you would be up all night with them at their homes. (laughs) And then they say, "Okay, we'll meet you at two o'clock in the afternoon. And of course, being raised as a North American, I would show up at latest 145 to be met by the assistant (laughs) and they would roll in when I would come into Hong Kong. For a nine o'clock meeting, again, you would show up. If you didn't show up by 830, they're going kind of, you'd be getting a text, where are you? And uh, show up and the assistant would show you, okay, you're in boardroom B. And literally three minutes before that time, they'd come busting in, they'd have the meeting and leave. And then I would travel. And if I didn't immediately respond to the Hong Kong client, as soon as I got home, it's like, well, that took you a while. Whereas if I had responded to the Saudi first, they would go, why are you pushing me? Why are you? You're all over me. You're crying. That is me. And so interesting, right? Yeah. So it's understanding all those and then having to know all the immigration citizenship rules. Are we dealing with Sharia law? Are we dealing with forced airship? Are we dealing with currency restrictions? All those different things and those different markets. So it really kind of forces 
which is unusual for North Americans like Mel or I, but again, having grown up in immigrant communities, mm -hmm. but really having to understand that the world doesn't operate with the same ethos or family no. dynamics no. as your long-term multi-generational American or Canadian. Correct. Let's actually go deeper into that, right? So let's take example of India. We can always change the example country. That's perfectly fine. I'm from India. So that's why I know I know that culture and I know that system Which part? better. I grew up in New Delhi, but I've okay. lived all across. Have you been to New Delhi? Yes. Oh, yes. You have. Yeah. yeah. Probably the most polluted city right now, but hopefully it gets better soon. Well, I don't know what New York is like today, but mm -hmm. thank that's you for the That's true. Canadians. With the, all the fires, you're right. <laughs> really? It was Code Orange. I think Code Orange may still be better than Delhi. It's so unfortunate. Mm -hmm. So let's think about that. So when somebody is thinking of moving to the U.S., right, there's still that immigration happening. There's still a desire to go to the land of opportunity, although I think it's getting lesser and lesser. However, there's still the schooling system here is one of the best ones, at least most reputed in the U.S. So if somebody is looking for that, I know there's so many categories, right? You can come here on H-1B visa. You can come here on an L-1 You can come here on through family green card. You can come here through EB-5 to investments. There's so many options for somebody sitting in India. How do they even think about it? And then I think uh, we'll take the India. I know there's no second passport. There's an OCI concept, but it's not really a new passport. So let's think about if somebody's looking to find an alternative Indian citizen today, what part they will take? How would you even think about a framework for them to look at and review things and evaluate things? These are complex issues. Before we go there, a big disclaimer. Please don't take anything that David and Mel are saying at the face value today because they don't understand your personal situation. So you have to come back and review it. If you want to set up a time with them, you should review your own case. So it's a very general topic. I don't want anyone to take us the stake to jump on something just because they heard on the podcast. So first off, we need to kind of understand what the family situation, what the personal situation is. And we'll take kind of two different examples. One would be the young man or woman who just graduated from a top Indian engineering school yeah. and wants to, has a great idea and they want to kind of move to Silicon Valley and start that idea, get the venture capital and build themselves up. That's one path. The other are maybe the matriarch or patriarch of a large business in India where they're looking to expand internationally yeah. and want to place, maybe they're worried about taxation, maybe they're worried about the political situation in India, maybe they're just looking for a lifestyle and don't want to breathe in the pollution of a Hong Kong or a New Delhi anymore. So it's understanding kind of what we're doing and understanding not only what will make sense from the kind of tax and family law and all those issues, but also I like to say, sell it at the breakfast table, that all the family yeah. members will meet their own goals. So for that young person who kind of, I want to go to Silicon Valley and give them my great idea. So we may start with, okay, well, how can we get you there in the environment? So have you thought about maybe doing a master? So that then would lead to a student visa, an F1. Then if they want, then that gives them a years of experience, a year of being able to work postgraduate. Then there was well, H1B. The problem is it's effectively a lottery. Yeah. It has a time limit, et cetera. So one of the things that we do a lot of is kind of what's kind of the back way of doing it. One of the things we do a lot of is that same person with from a top school, they're relatively young, their English is good. They've got some good work experience. 
Well, that person, Canada, will welcome them very quickly. There's no mm-hmm. country quotas in Canada. So we oftentimes will bring them up to Canada. So they're working for Silicon Valley Co. Yeah. Well, now, especially with remote work, we say, well, you're working for insert name of company. We'll now move you up into the Canadian office. You've got an Indian passport. You've got a Canadian work permit and permanent residence that you've gotten not through any investment, relatively fast processing. You can bring the grandparents because now you can bring your spouse. Your spouse will be able to work. You can have a Canadian passport in three years. You can then go and work in the States under TN. No limit, no time period processing at the border. Mm. That's pretty good. And you can bring, oh, well, we just had a baby. Well, great. You can bring over mother and father on what are called super visas. They're not ready to kind of completely abandon life back in India, but they can stay longer than 90 days. They can stay for six months or a year. And so there's a variety of, that's looking at not just the kind of rigid H-1B. Right now, I'm seeing a lot of people in that scenario, those young people being sold, well, don't bother with the H-1B because we all know the problems with that. Right. Invest money in an EB-5. Right. Let's talk about that for a second because EB-5 has... (laughs) I have another another business, Impact Wealth Builders, where we basically raise capital for investing in businesses in India, right? And EP5 has, and I'm seeing more and more, a lot of capital raisers and fund managers are looking, are proposing that this could be an EV5 category investment where you could bring in investment from outside. Help us understand well, that. Like what else, because they get paid. I think we were talking offline, but just before we went on the air, that it's a commission-based sale, right? So help us understand that EV5. And I will let kind of Mel jump in before I start talking about the other one. But specifically for the EB-5, EB-5 has been around a long time. It wasn't terribly popular. In 2008, of course, everybody, if you're a real estate developer, you just say, well, Lehman Brothers is yeah. is funding me until all of a sudden by the fourth quarter of 2008. Yeah. They weren't. And so hence that a lot of developers started looking at the EB-5 as a funding and that it kind of really took off to the point and several problems with EB-5. EB-5 is an investment visa that will lead directly to a green card. It is not a non-immigrant visa, which can later on be converted. It goes directly to a green card. It's a two-step process. The investment levels have now, it's depending on whether you're going into a lower development area or one of the kind of more developed areas, that's an investment choice. And you're putting up money, 800 or 1 million and 50, depending on which one you're choosing on. There's a couple of paths, regional center or direct project. But as a concept, it leads to a green card which Mel will talk about, Mm -hmm. but it also is restricted. I mean, 16 years backlog now in China. India is starting to get up there too. Wow. How much is it for India? What's the time log for India? Do you remember? I'd have to check, but it's probably around eight or nine years now of backlog. I did not realize that. Okay. Yeah. And what it is, is from the American side, money's come in, the regional center or the developer then has to show a certain job creation, and if they fail to do so, the investor doesn't get their green card. So there's a whole bunch of risk. Risk. Yeah, But it's being sold because it pays pretty high commissions. Now, neither Mel or I take commissions. We're fee-based advisors. We're going to advise on what's the best solution in your case. If you have to go in something like an EB-5 and a commission is paid, I would put that back to the client. So my advice is completely agnostic. 
But Mel, maybe talk about some of the green card issues. So from a U.S. tax perspective, we have to take into consideration two tax systems, the U.S. income tax system, which if you have a green card, once you step into the United States physically with that green card, Mm -hmm. you're a U.S. income tax resident. And with that comes, as David mentioned, the exceptionalism of the U.S. tax system being that the United States is perhaps the only industrialized country in the world that taxes on the basis of citizenship in addition to residency. Yeah. So this is an issue. Now, if you are a green card holder, by law, you are an income tax resident. And unless you file an election saying it's not really an election, a claim for a treaty claim with a form 8833 with your U.S. income tax return saying I have closer connections to India and I should not be a U.S. resident. If you don't file that, you're a U.S resident alien, U.S. resident aliens are subject to worldwide income tax. Mm-hmm. So they're subject to U.S. income tax mm-hmm. on any Indian source income subject to the U.S. India tax treaty, which aims at preventing, but does not always prevent double taxation. Right. right. So the main concern, in addition to facing worldwide income tax, is what I mentioned to you previously, and that is The U.S. has a very invasive, comprehensive, overwhelming, stunning U.S. international information reporting system where the person coming to the U.S. from India would have to tell the United States about their Indian bank accounts, their Indian financial assets, any companies that they control in India, any Indian mutual funds. All of that necessitates annual filings and an expense to be a U.S. income tax resident. So reporting requirements and worldwide taxation with the possibility that you might file, but you've got to be very careful, a treaty election, a treaty Mm -hmm. claim to not be a resident of the U.S. on the basis you have closer connection back in India than in the U.S. Now, for U.S. gift estate generation skip tax purposes, it's a completely different test. The test for income tax purposes is highly objective. Do you have a green card? Are you physically present in the U.S.? That's pretty much it. Uh, However, for U.S. transfer tax purposes, it's a subjective test. It's based on domicile. The U.S. statutory definition of domicile for transfer tax purposes is where are you physically present and do you intend to remain there indefinitely? So... hmm. If you are physically present in the United States with your green card, there is a presumption that you are a U.S. domiciliary. That presumption means that you get a $12.92 million lifetime gift tax exemption in 2023 because you are a U.S. domiciliary. Conversely, if you are back in India and you spent some time in the U.S., but you pretty much don't have a home back there, don't have family in the U.S., and everyone's back in India, you might still have your green card, and you might still be a U.S. income tax resident, tax on worldwide income. Maybe you can file a treaty election. We'll come to that later on. But you're probably an Indian domicile, meaning you can make gifts 
not subject to of certain types of property. You could make gifts and not be subject to U.S. gift tax and not be subject to U.S. gift tax reporting on a Form wow. 79 if you're right. back in India with no plans ever to go back to the U.S. Two very diametrically opposite tests where you could be a U.S. income tax resident, mm-hmm. but if you go back to India, you might not be and may have given up being a U.S. domiciliary. The problem- but you still have your green card. You still have your green card, but here's the problem. Don't die. Because if you die and you're a non-domiciliary of the U.S., you only have a $60,000 lifetime exemption, wow. $60,000 estate tax exemption, but only on your U.S. site as assets. So right. let's say you died, and I've had this, let's say you die owning Amazon and Apple stock. Guess what? That's U.S. Citus for estate mm. purposes. And therefore, if you die in India with a green card and you might be a non-resident alien of the U.S. or a non-domiciliary of the U.S. for transfer tax purposes, your estate would have U.S. estate tax on just the value of the Amazon stock and the value of the Apple stock on the date of death with only a $60,000 exemption. Wow. It's a far cry from a $13 million exemption. Right. I'm going right. to stop there, but I think you get the feel for this is. I think this is so important, right, Mel and David, because people look at this as a piece of paper, getting a citizenship or getting a passport or getting a green card, a plastic card or whatever it is. But there's a lot more thought that needs to go behind it. Let me add one other comment, and David can supplement me and compliment what I'm about to say. My general tax lawyer thought is to go to David and say, David, is there any way that we can defer getting the green card? Why would I want to defer the green card? Mm -hmm. Here's why. If you ever decide that you have a green card and you then want to give it up, well, the U.S. has an exit tax. And the exit tax... Uh only applies to long-term green card holders and obviously to U.S. citizens. Maybe with an L-1 visa or some other type of visa that David can advise, if you can defer the beginning of holding a green card, you still have optionality to go back to India without facing an exit tax. Yeah. And as you can see, Mel and I, I mean, we deep dive and it's pretty complex and you want to have proper planning. Not only do you want to have somebody from an immigration point of view as to, okay, how are we going to do? What's the multi-jurisdictional solution? What are the tax implications inbound into the U.S.? But you also have to, we work in concert a lot with, obviously, Indian citizenship law and and Mm -hmm. immigration, we would know, but also Indian tax law. A lot of the clients we have, multi-generational, and particularly, a lot of them have what in India, black money. So they've got Hawala issues. You've got family property issues. You've got Banami transactions. You've got all of these different things. And you have to understand culturally, they're moving from that was kind of a normal into a US system, which is pretty rigid. And the other thing that has changed dramatically, not only for Indians coming in, but even for Americans, is as all those depositors at UBS and other groups said, well, the let's not tell them about it strategy, while illegal, kind of worked for a while. Well, guess what? Doesn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. And so everything from common reporting standards to FATCA to all the financial institutions that you would ever want to deal with, whether they're in India or Dubai or Seychelles or wherever, they're all 
signatories to agreements with the U.S. Treasury and qualified intermediary agreements. And so a lot of that information, so this is an opportunity when you're doing this to kind of do it right because the cost of failure is enormous. So it's understanding there's a complexity, get the right advisors, make sure your advisors aren't conflicted. I mean, the EB-5 salespeople will tell you none of this. Why? Because it would interrupt their ability to make a sale and make a commission. They're not acting in your best interest. They're acting in their own best interest, which is make the sale, whether it's appropriate or not. And not to beat up too much on EB-5, it's sometimes an appropriate solution. But yeah. it's got to be in the context of this kind of fully integrated plan. So, wow. Saka, let me address typically the two major tax planning opportunities. Mm-hmm. But these opportunities have to occur at a certain point in time. And as you indicated earlier, planning ahead is critical. So, for the ability of someone from, let's say, India coming to the US and They're going to be physically present in the U.S., don't know whether they're going to get a green card or not, but they'll satisfy the substantial presence test and they'll be a U.S. income tax resident on that basis. Now, the question for that person is, well, do they have stock in a very valuable Indian company? And if they do and they're physically present in the U.S. with no intent really to leave and go back to India anytime soon, they -hmm. could be a U.S. domiciliary. So from a U.S. gift estate and generation skip tax perspective, what I typically recommend and implement are so-called drop-off trusts. So a drop-off trust would be a U.S. trust that's irrevocable, Mm -hmm. and you drop into it maybe upwards of 80% of your net worth so that if, God forbid, you die while in the U.S., you're not subject to U.S. estate tax. Very effective to prevent U.S. estate tax, but it does nothing from an income tax point of view. Now, from an income tax point of view, it's a completely different strategy. Let's say you do own and your family owns a very valuable Indian company Uh and you're coming to the United States. Well, we, the United States, have three pernicious anti-deferral tax regimes. Number one, controlled foreign corporations. Number two, PFIX. And number three, the throwback tax for trust. So we're dealing here with the first two. And in order to blunt that and get favorable tax treatment, as I will explain, the often recommended approach is before you come to the U.S. and before you have the first day as a U.S. income tax resident, you need to file a check the box election on each of those Indian companies. If you do so, then for U.S. tax purposes only, I'll repeat, for U.S. tax purposes only, that Indian company will either be a disregarded entity or more than one owner, two owners, it'll be treated like a partnership. Both a disregarded entity and a partnership are flow through. They're not corporations. Well, if they're not corporations, that means that they cannot be subject to the CFC anti-deferral rules, nor to the PFIC anti-deferral rules. It's a big deal. And so it's only an election that has validity in the United States, has no impact on the company back in India. The problem with PFIC, for example, if you are a PFIC on one day, 
And I'll give you an example. An American makes an investment in an Indian company. It takes them a few years to get going and have real business and active revenue. That's right. probably a PFIC because when they invest initially, the company is just nothing more than a bank account and they're raising mm. money. Once a PFIC, always a PFIC. So even though it goes on to be a successful business, it would always be a PFIC. That's the right. reason to make the check the box election. But you have to come to me before you set foot in the U.S. Because I can't have you be filing this check the box election if you are already a U.S. income tax resident, because that would be a deemed liquidation of your shares. And you're not going to like the tax result. Got to do it before you move to the U.S. Socket, if your parents own a valuable Indian company, do not want them to leave it to you outright. Because if it's worth more than $12, $13 million today, and that exemption amount is scheduled to sunset after 2025 to perhaps $7 million, we right. don't want you to have U.S. estate tax because of your inheritance. Much right. better for your parents to set up a U.S. trust for you and your family. U.S. trusts are generally preferable when the beneficiaries are solely U.S. persons. So mm -hmm. if your family are living in the U.S., your parents might set up a U.S. trust for the shares that you're going to inherit in the Indian right. company, and we'll have to deal with CFC, et cetera. But that might be a good way to prevent U.S. estate tax or generation skip tax on the shares you're going to inherit. And if we can get to it early enough, we file a check the box election, have the trustee file it, then you don't have the onerous CFC and PFIC rules. The reason avoiding CFC is so important, it would be really nice, Socket, if on your family's company, for you to be able to claim on your personal income tax return in the United States, a pass-through of your share of the Indian corporate tax paid in India. That would be terrific. Well, that you can do, but only if you file the check the box election. You cannot do that. Wow. And we run into this often where the company, the person comes to the US, they didn't realize it, and they're stuck with being a CFC. Right. And if too much of the stock is owned by Americans, you can run into guilty. We don't have time to go into that, but it gets really complicated, very complicated. So the best advice, come early. The other best yeah. advice, I must have Indian counsel that I'm confident in on the other side. I am not an Indian lawyer. David's not an Indian lawyer. We must have an Indian counsel. India has different laws, different rules. They have uh, currency controls. There are certain ways you can take money out of a company, right. but not others, dealing with the difference between income accounts and capital accounts, mm -hmm. as you know. But you have to have Indian tax advice, Indian legal advice. That's interesting. Yeah, it, and I, I think David and Mel, this has been very, very insightful for me because I know we're talking India as an example that actually holds true for every single country that you may have an origin from when you're moving into the US so, or Canada. And Saka, let me sort of divert a little bit and talk about the reverse, about mm -hmm. someone who wants to raise money in the US, but they want to invest in India. I have clients in that situation. One of the things we often look at is, could I set up a Singapore company to make the investment into India. Mm -hmm. And then for US tax purposes, I make the check the box election to treat the India company as probably a disregarded entity. That way I get more efficient US tax treatment, but the check the box election only has effect in the United States. 
has no bearing on India. Oh, uh, why yeah. Singapore? Because Singapore and Dubai are two typical places that Indians will like to uh, locate offshore assets Correct. through which Correct. they would invest in India. In that specific case, they're still taxed because it's Singapore. I know Singapore itself has a very favorable tax system. But if we're bringing the capital from the US and routing it through Singapore, there are no tax advantages for the investors in the US, are there? Well, the advantage would be I want to file a check the box election. Correct. And I make it a Correct. disregarded entity. So it's neutral. But then why route it to Singapore? Why not go directly? Because to clients today would much prefer to have money outside the RBC. The uh, RB, Royal RBI. Bank of India. RBI, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, they would much prefer her to have the bulk of their assets sitting in Singapore with lower regulatory impact. And Singapore is only looking to tax people that work in Singapore. Correct. And they don't want Correct. to tax capital. Fine. And there's a currency control. So we talked about the young kind of person starting their career. Let's talk about the established family that's moving. Mm -hmm. Let's move them maybe an Indian family from Durban. So generation one who made the money, maybe they've already moved to, say, Mauritius. That's a very common South African yeah. structure. And, and the other kids are in South Africa. And Mel and I, again, we've got another family with this exact scenario where the family has, because of the load sharing, and they finally said, as they sit in the dark, yeah, we're Done. ready to go. It's not going to yeah. get any better. We're out of here. And so the three children... They want to move into the United States. They want to establish work careers. U.S. is very good for that. Mom and dad, they want to leave Mauritius. They want to be a little closer, but we won't necessarily bring them into the United States. So we would maybe establish them in a place like Bermuda. Mm -hmm. So the family wealth, and they are mm -hmm. staying from Bermuda. They want more than simply a visitor visa, B1, B2, to go in because they want to visit children and hopefully grandchildren and want to visit businesses or maybe want to enjoy New York or Miami or wherever in the States. And so we'll do different things. So for the children, we may say, okay, well, one of the kids was in the business in South Africa, so we'll do an intracorporate transfer, an L1. That'll get them very much quicker. Mm -hmm. Okay. Another child wasn't involved in that business. So maybe we'll get them there sooner with an E2 type of business. Oh. If we've got an exceptional, we may do an O, but we'll get a non-immigrant that will get them in there in the timing. South Africa then is, again, a country with a rising EB-5 waiting mm -hmm. period. We could go EB-5. Again, which investment you go into, that's a business decision. But maybe we can convert that L1 business, the U.S. business that we brought child number one in, we can have them be an employee sponsor after a couple of years, and we can sure. get that same green card yeah. that way. The parents may or may not ever. And once they've got green cards, they could sponsor the parents right. under the family class if we wanted them to get green cards. would be very conscious of, as Mel said, them being long-term. But they may be right. quite happy saying, well, we'll have the kids come to Bermuda. We'll take a Bermuda as the lower, lower east side. Yeah. It's a quick flight in. We can either go and visit everybody in the kids and grandkids in the States, or we get bored and we want to see the bright lights in big city. We'll go in, but we'll choose not to be taxpayers. Or if we do, we're going to be conscious of the domicile issue, which Mel was talking about, and the long-term green card holder, which would then put them into the exit tax regime should they decide to give that up. So lots of 
various parts and tools in the toolbox. Sakat, on this particular situation, the question that I would find interesting, I've run into this on this family, is that let's assume that the parent, G1, has already set up a Mauritius trust Mm -hmm. because they're trying to uh, limit tax in South Africa, and that Mauritius trust has a liquidity event. Well, that Mauritius trust, really typically a Mauritius foundation, I would have to analyze and confirm whether for U.S. tax purposes is that a foreign trust or foreign corporation, because I have different anti-deferral rules that might apply. If some of the children, G2, and their children, G3, are going to be U.S. residents for the time being and maybe become citizens, then I've got to be worried about the throwback tax, which would be that when a foreign trust makes a distribution to U.S. persons, it can be a 70 or 80% tax. So what we would do is we would manage the distributions by... If the trust had $100 million, the Mauritius Foundation had $100 million, and it's earning 5%, distribute the 5% either outright to the U.S. Mm -hmm. persons or to U.S. trusts for their benefit so that I don't run into a throwback tax problem Mm -hmm. on the Mauritius Foundation that would be paid by the U.S. persons when they receive distributions, but rather... The five million a year could be put into U.S. domestic trusts. We no longer have a throwback tax. Do all the accumulation of the income essentially in U.S. trusts right. for your U.S. children. If you're concerned about creditors and ex-spouses, and you want to protect the five million dollars that's available each year to your U.S. children, just like we would want Indian Council in the other case, we want South African Council because there's currency right. controls. Is South African revenue, are they going to consider you non-resident? There are even immigration and citizenship controls, because if you're going to take on that U.S. citizenship, then you have to file with the South African government to confirm that you want to keep your South African citizenship. Right. My God, Mel and David, this is such an, I learned so much on this conversation, because of course, I had no idea the complexity involved. And Mel, to your point about checking a simple box, and it's not as simple as checking the box. You have to really think about when the box is checked is way important than if the box is checked. So, Saka, I can check the box, but remember this. It's now a disregarded entity if I own the Indian company completely right? for all U.S. tax purposes. Well, what does that mean? That means that for income tax, I don't have CFC or PFIC. But for estate tax, it's as if Socket owns it because I just right. I don't count. I don't look at the underlying entity. So you own the Indian assets. Is that an estate tax issue? There's a lot of different yeah. ways that this has to be examined. Mm-hmm. And you're absolutely correct. The complexity is profound. But the best advice is to get a good team around a wealthy family so they have good advice on all aspects of the move. Correct, correct. I was going to say, and that move, to kind of wrap it up, the move can be, is going to be life-changing, not only for the immigrants, but for future generations. And so it can be quite successful, but you want to make sure that you do it right. So the price of getting proper advice and figuring it out and doing it right, you know, is going to be a rounding error compared to the benefits of of having successfully executed. I'm a firm believer, like the money needs to be spent where it needs to be spent. You don't want to be penny wise and pound foolish. 
right? To spend a few thousand dollars to get the right advice, to get the right team uh, behind you so they can they can actually help you guide through it. David and Mel, I think this is such an interesting topic. What we'll have to do is we'll have to actually do a deeper dive where I would bring you on for a webinar where we can share some slides, say some visuals so people can see it, feel it and recognize it. And maybe hopefully this message, because this is such a complex topic to digest, because I think a lot of stuff that we were hearing on the podcast today, most people may not even know these terminologies, like the CFCs, mm -hmm. the PIC and the EB5s. So I think they need to hear it a few times to understand the complexity of the ecosystem that's involved. But if you have the team of right advisors behind you, you can get around it very easily because trauma like you, they've already dealt with most of the issues, right? Yeah. So that's where I think it's going to be very, very helpful. So I'll work with your team to get you back in. I have my own Facebook group. So we'll do this webinar on the Facebook group so we can post the visuals as well. And Saka, David and I each have our own separate, albeit coordinated websites. And so all the articles and podcasts and other things, blogs that we awesome. have written and co-written, people can go read them pretty much in real time. My website is melvinawarshaw.com. Okay, perfect. We'll, we'll get that included. David, what's yours? Mine is, hopefully there'll be the spelling of my name somewhere on this podcast, lesbronsassociates, plural, dot com. Of course, we're both Mel and I are on LinkedIn and we have somewhat unique name. So we're probably hit on the Google. Perfect. Big well, Google thank machine. you again, Mel and David, for your time. Really appreciate it. It's a complex topic. So I really appreciate you guys at least trying to simplify it, although it's not simple. But so thank I you have again. one question, Socket. Yeah, David. Ajit Jain, what's the relationship? Not with mine. It's a very popular last name. You you know who Ajit Jain is, don't yes, you? Yes, I do. I do. Yeah. I wish there was a relationship. There is not. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, David, you know who Ajit Jain yes. is, don't you? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank well, you. Well, thank you. Appreciate yeah. it, guys. If you got value from this episode, you might consider sharing this content with a friend. But most importantly, be sure to take action on what you've learned. One way you can take the next step is to connect directly with Socket on an investor call. That link is waiting for you in the show notes below. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Please consult your own advisors when making any investment decisions. Keep listening. We'll see you on the next episode.